So the speaker tonight is Mr. Roland Morley, who's sitting there. Um, he joined the Navy and trains a, a Royal Navy diver with an attachment to the Royal Marines. He's travelled extensively in North America, South America and North Africa. He did surgical training in Plymouth and Portsmouth and then left the Navy to complete his urological training in Oxford and Wessex. Since becoming a consultant, he's been a Divisional Director of Surgery, the Director of Education and is presently Training Programme Director in Urology. He tells me his talk will centre around his interests outside of urological practice, including time in the Territorial Army Reserves with recent conflicts and teaching abroad, particularly in Sri Lanka and Tanzania. He'll also reveal, reveal lessons learned from treks up mountains, cycling over difficult terrains and from other sporting events. So, please take the floor. <laughs> Right, as you can see, that picture doesn't look anything like me at all. In fact, that picture was about 15 years old and was, take, was taken when I, when I first started 15 years ago at Kingston. Uh, as you can see, I'm now sitting here with a, with a moustache, which is really for Movember, for those of you that are not participating in it. So if you want to sponsor me, just go to UK Movember and just put my name in and you can donate. Right. We started to, when, when I was asked what I was going to talk about, I first of all thought, why are they bothering to ask me? And I think it's mainly because I've known Yvonne for I don't know how many years, but certainly at least quarter of a century. And it was during my time up in Scotland when I was up there with the Navy. And then I just took this uh, topic off the top of my head called Perambulations of a Peripatetic Urologist Abroad. Uh, and it wasn't actually until I came up on the train this evening that I thought, well, actually, what does peripatetic and perambulation actually mean? Uh, so I actually added a couple of two slides to this. And actually, we've got perambulate, walk or travel through or round a place. So I actually thought that was quite appropriate to the talk. And then peripatetic, nomadic, itinerant, traveling, wandering, roving, roaming, migrant. And I thought that actually... Uh, uh, took my talk actually quite well. So I thought, very appropriate here. Now, just to give you a little bit of background, I know Bill's already given this. I graduated from St. George's. I trained as a uh, medical naval cadet, i.e. they paid my way through university for the last three years after second MB. I had eight years in the Navy. While I was there, I was trained as a Royal Marine and Navy diver, but effectively, I was a naval doctor. Uh, met my wife in the Royal Navy. She was actually a naval nurse. Uh, did my basic surgical training in the Royal Navy and then, as Bill mentioned, completed urological training in Wessex. But when I left the Navy, I went into the Navy Reserve and then I went into the RAM, RAMC Reserve. So a sort of potted uh, perambulation. What am I doing now? Consultant urologist at Kingston Hospital, Divisional Director of Surgery, TPD Urology for South Thames on the SAC, and I'm Chairman of our bowel section of female urology, i.e. the reconstructive and female aspects of, of bowels. And that has the link, to a certain extent, with what I tend to do in Tanzania uh, and Sri Lanka. Now, a little bit of history, right? After, after finishing at, uh, at medical school, but then, I then went straight to Dartmouth. And for those of you that don't know, your time at Dartmouth is spent getting up at 5.30 in the morning, going for a run around the quadrangle. And it's actually, if you can see here, the quadrangle is right round uh, the, the outer quadrangle, rather the inner quadrangle, that's done at six o'clock in the morning. You have about 12 weeks of that. And then finally, you pass out on a nice sunny morning uh, overlooking uh, uh, Dartmouth, and it is very, very enjoyable. And it's a beautiful place. Uh, after that, I actually got posted to Rosyth. And Rosyth was where I actually met Yvonne. Yeah? And it was Yvonne that introduced me to Scottish country dancing and the Scottish, the Scottish way of life. Yeah? I mean, for those of you that don't know, Edinburgh does have a peculiar way of life. It is quite cliquey. It is uh, very much, we love, the, we love the Scots and we hate the English. But having said that, even though Yvonne is Scottish, she did like me as an Englishman. So it's very good. Um, I, spent a, I spent almost a year in Rosyth, uh, and the main duties in Rosyth were actually sitting there as a general duties officer or 
for want of a better word, GP to uh, the local uh, naval population. Mainly those people working in the naval dockyard who were predominantly servicemen, but some who weren't servicemen. Uh, although I was living in Edinburgh, on the other side of the river, and Yvonne entertaining me most of the time to the better ways of Scottish life. Anyway, after that, I actually got posted on HMS Heckler. For those of you that don't know what HMS Heckler is, HMS Heckler was a is a survey ship. It's actually been decommissioned now, but I thought I'd give you a potted history of what HMS Heckler was. There have actually been seven reincarnations of HMS Heckler, but the most important one was actually HMS Heckler when it first started, which was actually as a survey-type vessel. And it was actually the first vessel that went along with its sister ship along the exploration of the Northwest Passage, trying to find the route uh, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Never quite got there, got stuck in icebergs, etc. Uh, but actually did a lot of geographical work in actually being able to achieve what it wanted to achieve, and then set the uh, precedent for future explorations in finding that Northwest Passage. I didn't know this till I researched it a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and then uh, there were a number of minor reincarnations of HMS Heckler, and then its next most important one was as actually as a, a destroyer during the Second World War. And it was famous for actually being uh, torpedoed uh, by a U-boat in 1942. And then the final reincarnation of HMS Heckler was uh, this one here, which was the one I was actually posted on. Now, what, what did a survey sh ship do? Basically, it potted all the way up and down uh, the uh, Atlantic, surveying deep depths. And basically, we're surveying deep depths for submarines. Yeah? Because basically, you've got to hide your submarines somewhere. So these survey ships are actually trying to find out where we could hide our submarines. Why was I posted on HMS Heckler? Well, the reason I was actually posted on HMS Heckler is because I trained as a Royal Navy diver while I was in uh, the Navy. And in fact, straight after coming out of Dartmouth, I went on to uh, Navy diver training. There are two types of Navy divers. You can either uh, do a closed, uh, closed breathing, which are the mine clearance divers, which I didn't do, or the ship's divers, which I did do. And the ship's divers are those ones that basically, when a ship's in port or when it's in a potential area of conflict, are the ones that go on the bottom of the ships, check the bottom of the ships, make sure no mines have been laid. And if they have, just get rid of them. So not really like your American seals, but, but not bad and not good uh, and pretty good. But the nice thing about being on HMS Eckler is the number of places I went to. Uh, I visited a, a first visit was actually to uh, uh, Lome and Togo, then the Ivory Coast, uh, Sierra Leone, uh, and also Nigeria. Uh, the second trip was out to Bermuda via Saint Helena, but also Madeira. And then on the way, we went out to Washington, Norfolk, uh, Charleston, and then down into uh, Brazil. Uh, into Rio, Rio de Janeiro, and finally uh, into Uruguay. What, what did I actually do at sea? Well, you're a medical officer, but actually you had to do nothing. And my most famous thing that I probably had to do at sea was actually sew somebody's extensor tendon while I was at sea. You would never be allowed to do that nowadays because I probably caught the job up because you were never trained to actually do it. But that was probably the, uh, the most important thing I did surgically. Apart from handing out condoms, to all the sailors when we were in Rio de Janeiro, which was just at the time when uh, the, we had AIDS actually starting. And I started with three, three and a half thousand condoms and came back with about 3,248. Uh, 3, so not many condoms were used on that trip. Um, but because you had very little to do at sea, you got a number, number of other jobs. You were there as a marine biology officer, uh, but you didn't have to do much of that. You were there as an entertainments officer, and that was probably your most important job at sea. Uh, you had to sort out the entertainment for all those sailors at sea. And for those that you don't know, most of the ships have got flight decks, and on the flight decks, you would set up numerous uh, entertainments. The most popular entertainments were uh, horse racing, believe it or not, just like you've got the uh, Totopoli uh, horse racing, you can actually do that on a flight deck. Uh, but one of the other uh, important things, and I'll just show you something about Neptune and crossing the equator, was water and wine caterer. 
I knew nothing about wine, and I'm trying to link this talk with wine. But you're appointed as water and wine caterer, and it is your job to get all the wine, all the beer, onto the ship at the appropriate cost, at the appropriate choice. And at that time, the Navy only bought its wine and beer from Siconian Speed. And Siconian Speed only did courage directors in terms of the beer, plus probably one or two others. And the only wine you could get was the cheapest wine. And my most famous mission as water and wine caterer was when we, went to, uh, when we were in South America, was actually getting introduced to Chilean and Argentinian wine. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that later. But just to, while I was in Uruguay, I found this car. And uh, this is the car that I got married in, which and Yvonne actually came to my wedding. But it didn't look like that when I bought it in Uruguay. Uh, it was actually a decrepit, rusty old heap. Got it re, uh, it's got it re, uh, made up in uh, Uruguay. They don't do it to the same standard that you would actually redo a car in this country, but certainly got it to the appropriate standard, uh, and then shipped it back on one of our ships coming back. I had to do that on the on the sly because uh, you're not you're not actually allowed to put personal property in a hangar on a ship. Uh, but to, to, the interesting thing about this, this car and the bit of history, it was a DeSoto 1928. And it's actually sit, sitting in my garage now, so it's nearly 90 years old. It gets out very, very occasionally. Probably the last time it got used in any extensive manner was when I got married 22 years ago. I'm now redoing it up for my daughter's wedding if and when she gets married, but that's what she wants to get married in. But a bit of history about uh, the DeSoto. DeSoto is a company set up by Chrysler, and most of you will know about Chrysler, but DeSoto was supposed to be the upmarket version of Chrysler. And when they introduced DeSoto in 1927, it actually did very well for about three to five years. Uh, then Chrysler decided that their other uh, uh, Chrysler models, they wanted to push up market as well. So what actually then happened was DeSoto, although a subdivision of Chrysler, was in competition with its other models, and so slowly but surely had a decline over the rest of the years and finally went out of production in the early 1950s. But a bit of history about uh, DeSoto himself. Hernando DeSoto was an explorer. He made a fortune in the slave trade, and he was the first one to discover uh, the Mississippi River. Uh, financing it himself. And so Chrysler at the time were trying to push an upmarket model with exploration and something different uh, behind it. But the nice thing to know about this car is it still runs. I'll probably take it out New Year's Day once during the rest of the year and that's about it. Now, I want to talk about crossing the equator because one of the most important things uh, about being in the Navy is if you are at sea and you cross the, the equator, you have to celebrate uh, Neptune. And so what you actually do is all the people that have not crossed the equator before have to be initiated in the rites and rituals of, uh, of Neptune. And so you do have a King Neptune and you also have all the other members of Neptune's team. You have a queen as you can see uh, and the, the essentials behind the rites of, HMS, of, of Neptune are to initiate and dunk somebody in water. Well, you don't throw them over the side, but you create another pool or the equivalent of the sea on the flight deck and initiate them in the rites. And basically, all these people have got to dress up in, in as stupid and as entertaining uh, gear as they can. Now, following my time at sea, uh, when, I, when I actually enlisted uh, with the Navy, my intention was actually training as a gynecologist. I know there are a couple of gynecologists here. Uh, I'll tell you a bit more about my positive history, but actually when uh, I was due to go straight off to the Royal Marines and train with the Royal Marines, but because Obson Gyne then got uh, stopped within the Navy and actually in all the military services uh, at a later stage, I had my time with the Royal Marines actually uh, put on hold while decisions were being made about what was going to happen with Obstagini training in the military. So that's why I ended up uh, going into Rosyth and then going off to sea. And then finally I ended up with uh, the Royal Marines. So I went to Limston, did the Green Beret course, which for those of you that don't know is basically six weeks of hard slog. It is interesting because if you do the All Arms Commando course, which this was, 
uh, you have to go to the same standard as the other uh, squaddies do to do it in the nine months they have to do. But you basically have to get to that stage when you go where you're halfway along the course. So you have to be pretty fit along that line. I'm now paying the price because I now can't run, haven't been able to run for about uh, a year and a half. My knees are falling apart and <laughs> life is not as good as it was, which is why I've taken up cycling, more about cycling uh, in a second. Uh, so uh, rather than having the two to two and a half years that one would normally spend with the Royal Marines, I then had one year with the uh, Royal Marines, uh, mainly based in Plymouth, but had one tour out uh, to Norway, which is predominantly associated uh, with uh, exercises and skiing. And skiing is one of my loves in life. One of the things that you discover about doing a talk like this is you discover all well, most of your old pictures are actually tucked away in the attic and you can't find them anywhere. So trying to find actually a picture of me away with the Royal Marines is actually proven to be very difficult. And I probably won't actually be able to get those photographs until I've actually retired and gone through the loft. Now, following that, uh, I actually started my surgical training. Uh, and I started surgical training. You asked why did I get surgical training when I was talking about being an obstetrician and gynecologist. Well, they decided they were no, no longer going to train any naval doctors in obstetrics and gynecology at all, and they weren't even going to succumb them to the army. So what I actually decided to do at that time was actually start surgical training. So I started surgical training and started the Royal Naval Hospital uh, in uh, Plymouth, which uh, was uh, built during the Seven Years' War. It was completed in 1760, 1762. And th the point I've actually tried to make on this photograph is it's actually built on a quadrangle. And most of the naval, uh, naval and military hospitals have been built on quadrangles. The reason they built on quadrangles is because of the serious infections, tuberculosis, etc., that existed in the 18th and 19th century. And therefore, they were, to a certain extent, uh, isolation hospitals. So I had my first year as an SHO uh, at the Royal Naval Hospital in uh, Stonehouse. For those of you that may have worked in Plymouth, we actually had a rotor that rotated through with Dereford, Dereford being the NHS hospital, and so two nights a week Stonehouse was on call, and the other five nights a week uh, uh, Dereford was on call. After that, I got posted to the Royal Naval Hospital uh, in Hasler, which is in Portsmouth, and then spent uh, the next year and a half at Hasler, and towards the end of the time there, uh, actually obtained uh, my surgical fellowship. For those of you that don't know, uh, really in the early 90s with Royal Naval Hospital Stonehouse and in the late 90s with Royal Naval Hospital Hasler, they closed down. In fact, there are no military hospitals in the forces at the moment, although as you well know, there is a big uh, medical defense unit uh, in Birmingham and there are smaller medical defense units actually posted around the country, Frimley being one example, but there are no, a number of other examples. But you can see that the architecture here still continues on that quadrangle uh, basis. And the, imp the interesting thing about the Royal Naval Hospital in Hasler, it was it opened in 1793, so a little bit later, a little bit later than Stonehouse, but was the largest brick building in the UK for almost 150 years. Uh, this is just a picture of the officer's accommodation. So you actually see we actually lived in style uh, at that time. So I trained as a surgeon, and I actually met my wife in the Navy. She was a naval nurse at Hasler. And as you can see, the naval uniform until uh, the uh, mid-1990s was a starched pinny front. It was a starched uh, top hat and they actually had to wear suspender belts with stockings. Yeah? They weren't allowed to wear tights. Yeah? So it's very important from, from a surgeon's point of view that we got to know these girls very well. As I did, and I subsequently married one, uh, so there's me actually having uh, my uh, guard of honor uh, with some of my uh, medical colleagues uh, and my best man on the left-hand side. Now. We're just diverting slightly here because we're going over to uh, Kilimanjaro. After I finished my time in the Navy, I then went and did surgical or urological training in Wessex. But what I haven't actually put in and what Bill hasn't told you because he probably doesn't know is I actually left the net when I left the Navy, I actually went to Oxford and Southampton to do obs and gynae training. But I did my research with the urologist and then I saw the light. Yeah. 
And like a lot of people will say, they say, why do you choose the speciality that you do? You choose the speciality that you do because of the people you work with. And certainly the urologist that I met uh, in Southampton uh, persuaded me that I actually wanted to do urology, and I already had my surgical fellowship, but I'm probably the only urologist in the country that has actually got MRCOG and FRCS. But uh, <laughs> an unusual way to get to where you are within urology nowadays. But right at the end of my uh, urological training, I actually got funded by Eurolink, and Eurolink is our a college link with uh, third world countries to actually go out and spend a number of months in Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center. Uh, for those of you that don't know, um, this is, uh, this is uh, Kilimanjaro in the background here, but I'm gonna show you some nicer pictures later on. But Kilimanjaro Medical Center is probably the second biggest hospital in Tanzania. Uh, the interesting thing about it is when it started up, it was totally funded by uh, uh, Europe, and predominantly the Swedes, but also the Dutch, more latterly the Americans, and some input, input for the Brits. The most important thing about Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center now is it is the second biggest medical school uh, in uh, Tanzania. Uh, Dar es Salaam has always traditionally been the big, medi uh, big medical school. The majority of uh, medical students still train in Dar es Salaam. But what they've done in uh, Kilimanjaro Christian Medical Center is they, are, they have pushed it very much towards community doctor training. So the majority of these uh, doctors that go through their training, they will do their basic science within this hospital but the level of science training is relatively limited, but the practical and the clinical training is very much geared towards getting these people out into the community. So very much towards preventative medicine rather than treating uh, with major surgery. Um, the nice thing about uh, Kilimanjaro uh, Christian Medical Center is it's grown with time. It has got the advantages of having significant external funding uh, and it now has approximately 950 beds. But like all of these hospitals that are out in the third world, you can actually spend three or four days getting to the hospital. You can then spend between 24 and 48 hours waiting and queuing outside your clinic, waiting for your appointment and actually being seen. And then you've got to get through a clinic of 40 or 50 people to actually uh, be... Uh, uh, to, get, to get through the work. And what type of work do we do there? Well, I'm going out approximately once every two to three years because I've got a Sri Lankan link, link as well. But the predominant stuff that we actually do is pediatric urology. The pediatric urology is predominantly hyperspadius surgery. Urethral reconstruction everywhere in the third world has got a huge amount of urethral strictures. And so a significant proportion of the work that we go out to do is urethral reconstruction, predominantly primary urethral reconstruction, but some of it's secondary and two-stage uh, urethral reconstruction. You've got to remember that because of the facilities that they actually have out in, out in Africa, doing primary complex urethral reconstruction is not necessarily a good thing and quite often two-stage urethral reconstructions have a far lower infection rate and much more preferable for these people so quite often what we'll do is do a first stage of urethral reconstruction and then another team will go out six to nine months later and do the second stage of that urethral reconstruction the other thing that is big in Africa is bladder reconstruction as you probably know a lot of uh, Africa uh, is uh, is Muslim uh, or has a Muslim uh, population and Muslims I, I don't absolutely know the reason why do not like the idea of stomas and the second thing about stomas is is it's all very well creating a stoma but if you create a stoma what do you do about stoma bags you can't get stoma bags you can't get stoma appliances out in Africa so quite a lot of the bladder reconstruction is related to the fact that we divert the urine so you take the bladder out but you divert the urine to the bowel it's what we call a minds two pouch. But unlike the old style surgery, where you mix feces and urine, with a minds two pouch, you keep the, uh, you keep the urine separate from the feces. So the most, one of the most popular reconstructions for bladder removal is actually a minds two pouch. And of course, fistulas. But I've put fistulas here in a sort of uh, tan color 
I know, I've put a reference to JL because John Lemberger, I know, has just come back from Uganda, having learned to go out and do some fistula work. But what we're actually seeing at the moment is a reversal of a bit of fistula work because we thought we'd all go out there and actually learn how to do fistula work. But actually, when I go out now, I do hardly any fistula work because certainly with uh, KCMC, they are actually very good at repairing fistulas, just like, place, uh, just like the Fistula Hospital in Ethiopia and another other institutions, they are starting to train their their own people very, very well. There are problems with keeping those experienced surgeons because they don't make much money and they want to go and work elsewhere. Uh, but where we are, we're having regular returns to KCMC. It's not always the same people that go out. We do tend to change the team, but generally the team will go out to do uh, one of these things. The theatres are actually quite well set up uh, out there because they get quite a lot of donated equipment. It tends to be equipment that's actually run out of its time, but that doesn't matter. But uh, so things like actually resectoscopes and actually KCMC in Tanzania is probably the main center for learning TURPs in the whole of uh, Tanzania. If you go to Dar es Salaam, you will still get the majority of Dar es Salaam having open uh, retropubic prostatectomies or transphysical prostatectomies. Whereas in KCMC, the majority of your TURPs are majority of your prostatic operations are TURPs. So it just goes to show how things are different in Africa, because we've been doing TURPs in this country for over 60 years now. The interesting thing about it is you don't have your saline irrigation or any other irrigation. You have to create the fluids that you're going to uh, irrigate yourself. So generally, you'll have a bean can or the equivalent of a big can, canister that's been either been an oil canister or something else, and you will create your own uh, glycine solution or sugar solution, which is what you create. Or if it's a saline solution, you make it up and you just drip it through for, through hydrostatic gravity. You don't have the luxury of having all the bags that we have and we traditionally uh, see in the UK. But they are very, very good. And the other thing that's important to remember about this is the anesthesia. The majority of anesthetics that are actually done in Africa are done under spinal anesthesia rather than general anesthesia. And a, the majority of people that give the anesthesia are not anesthesiologists or anesthetists. They're actually very well, highly skilled, trained ODAs. And I don't know if you found that, John, when you've recently been out to uh, Uganda as well. The ODAs tend to do the majority of the anesthetics and literally all spinals. Uh, KCMC is actually near a little town called Moshi. Moshi is about uh, five miles from the main entrance to Kilimanjaro. Uh, it is a very colorful place. And it's there. if I can say anything about Tanzania, they have got one of the most friendly populations that you could actually come across. They're completely different from West Africa. And if any of you have been to Nigeria, completely different population. They're not corrupt. They're actually very, very helpful. And the one thing that you notice going out to Tanzania is how fertile the country is. It's a beautifully fertile country. And what you can't quite understand, for those of you that have been to South Africa, for instance, how is it that South Africa has managed to do what it has, but Tanzania cannot make use of its fertile land? And I think the problem is, is education, education, education. Now, a bit onto Mount Kilimanjaro, because um, I did my first uh, climb up uh, Kilimanjaro in 2003. Uh, the, one, the reason I wanted to mention something about Kilimanjaro is because one is because of a beautiful mountain. For, the most, for those of you that don't know, uh, it actually is the largest freestanding mountain in the world. It sits there at just under 20,000 feet. It is the only one freestanding. If you look at the top here and you look at that picture there, you can see a lot of snow. Now, these are relatively old photographs. There's glacier on the top, and the glacier is now receding, and with global warming, is receding at a rate of knots, such that there will be no glacier there within the next uh, 10 to 15 years. Now, what's very nice about uh, Kilimanjaro is I just want to keep, get, get you to keep an eye on these pictures as I go through, because this is basically the entrance to the national park. And the one thing that you will really notice here is how green and lush it is. It's full of amazing wildlife. And the wildlife reflects what you're doing at the different levels as you go up the mountain. You then, when you get up to about 10,000 feet, which is where we are here, you start getting into sort of uh, general scrubland, much more open plains. This is where you'll find uh, wild antelope uh, and, well, they do have rhinoceros here, but I never saw one. 
Uh, you then start getting uh, up to about 12, 13,000 feet. That's the sister uh, mountain. That's Mount Meru, which is uh, sitting about uh, 30, miles, 30 miles away. And quite often people will go up that as a training run or training uh, climb before they go up Kilimanjaro. This is just showing you more of the uh, species of flower there. This is the type of accommodation. There are, there are a number of ways you can out, go up Kilimanjaro. You can actually go in the, the huts, which is what they call the Coca-Cola route, because Coca-Cola, Coca fizzy, uh, very popular. That's why they called it uh, the Coca-Cola route. And they've got huts all the way up, which is the way we went up. I've, I did go up once before that, and I actually took the hard way up, which is via the uh, uh, tents. I would honestly say... If you like creature comforts, you've got to go this way, but actually it gets very cold, very cold at night. Uh, but what I want you to notice here is that just, again, the change in formations. This is actually sitting at about 14,000 feet, huge rock formations, where, and this is called zebra rocks because of the way these rocks are actually designed. And then you get up to about 15,000 feet, and you can see it's starting to look a bit like a lunar landscape. There's hardly any plants there at all, and then you've just got that sheer a climb uh, or sheer walk climb uh, up to the top. You actually don't have to climb it, it's just a hard walk. Uh, I've put this picture of Ian up here. Ian is one of our colorectal surgeons. Now, Ian, unfortunately, this was actually taken at about 15,000 feet, so just before we got to the last hut, and Ian is an insulin-dependent diabetic, so am I. Uh, and he started vomiting at about 16,000 feet, and we all put that down to mountain sickness. That night, uh, there's a picture of me there, but that night we then climbed up from Kibo Hut, which is at 16,000 feet, to Gilman's Point, which is the second highest point going up Kilimanjaro, at 5,681 meters. We left Ian behind. We left one of the others behind because he was still vomiting. We thought it was gastroenteritis. He had his uh, uh, diabetic test strips and his meter, and his meter was continually reading uh, blood sugars of between about 8 and 11. What we hadn't realized is actually, and it's all there in the very small print, if you look at the very small print, is that gl the glucose oxidase reaction does not work above 15,000 feet. So what was happening here, he was actually getting a diabetic ketoacidosis, uh, and we then went up to the top of the mountain. We came back, came back down. We found out that he'd been evacuated out to KCMC, which is the hospital I've been working in. And he was on intensive care there for about two weeks, then got transferred to the Aga Khan Hospital in Nairobi and was intensive care for another three weeks. So the moral of the story is if you're a diabetic, don't rely on your test strips at 16,000 feet. So once we've got to Gilman's Point, this is the view that you get at Gilman's Point once the, once the sun is coming up. And then when you get to uh, the top, you then start seeing this glacier. And this glacier is receding very, very quickly. But this point here is actually the top at 5,895 meters. We were raising money for the Kingston Cancer Unit at that time. And we did raise a significant amount of money. Uh, what is actually quite interesting, it takes you from that 16,000 feet to uh, just about 20,000 feet, it takes you about eight hours to do that. Uh, you then uh, get down, you can get back down to the hut on the way down from 20 to 16,000 feet in about two hours. You can get down to the bottom and the uh, entrance to the park in about another six hours of that. So you can get down in about eight hours, but it takes you five days getting up. And the reason it takes you five days getting up is because you have got to acclimatize here. I've then got this summary of all the stuff that I've done so far, as you can see. But what then happened uh, later on that year was the first uh, Gulf War. Uh, and after I had left uh, the Navy, I then uh, uh, had a short period of time with the uh, Royal Naval Reserve, but predominantly because I wasn't based in a port at that time, uh, I ended up joining the RAMC uh, with uh, three, uh, 306 Field Hospital, which then merged with another unit and became 304 uh, Hospital. And a, a, a detachment went out uh, to uh, Coyote, which is about 30 miles uh, south of Kuwait. Now, for those of you that don't know how this works, 
it is very much like MASH that you've watched, watched on the box with Alan Alder. It is not significantly different. Uh, uh, you tend to do 12-hour uh, shifts, so you've got 12 hours on, 12 hours off. There's an anesthetic team, there's a surgical team, there's a radiology team. The, this camp was actually within a far larger camp, which is uh, predominantly an American camp, but it had a British detachment at it. And the hospital is just like you would see any field hospital. Uh, this is just some of the post that you actually see being delivered, which is delivered on a regular basis. Usually comes in at every 48 to 72 hours. Uh, these uh, was the uh, sleeping accommodation and rest accommodation. And we actually did grow our own food occasionally. It's not cannabis. <laughs> right, but getting on to a more serious note, how do we actually prepare for this? And I'm going to bring in a little bit more serious stuff about training because what actually happens with field hospital is we have to do an annual camp and every annual camp that we do is geared towards uh, training the field hospital. So out of your two weeks, you'll spend one week actually doing adventure training or whatever you like doing and then you'll spend the next week actually simulating a, a field hospital. So by the time you actually get posted out, if you get posted out, you're actually pretty experienced with this. Uh, now, because I had done a moderate amount of general surgical training before, and uh, it was still relatively new, uh, that w actually held me in good stead. Uh, but the most, the most important thing actually going towards this was the Royal College of Surgeons Advanced Trauma Skills course, because that uh, really was quite good training. And the most important thing about going out to these areas is do not try and be a hero. You've got to stick to military surgical principles. So the military surgical principles are basically get that patient or that casualty fit for surgical evacuation. That's your primary task. So you don't want to do complex vascular reconstructive surgery. That's the type of stuff you'll do back at Birmingham if they get back that far. So you do enough to actually prepare that patient to actually uh, get back. Now, I'm going to digress slightly into surgical skills training because it's food for thought more than anything else here. Because with, with the new GMC standards, not only have you got to train as a surgeon, but you've got to be a medical expert, a good communicator, a collaborator, a manager, health advocate, scholar, uh, and professional. Some of you will, retire, will have retired and not know this, but within the roles of a surgeon, we're no longer Sir Lancelot Spratt but we're actually got to think about how we function within a hospital. And you're now assessed on uh, your professional competency, your role as a manager, health advocate, uh, scholar, communicator, and collaborator. Uh, and when we're doing these overall assessments and plans for our trainees, we've got to do regular ed educational appraisals. They need to see their educational supervisor. They need to have an annual assessment. And what happens is they're assessed on their knowledge and skills, their experience. Uh, and if they are seen to be successful, then get to completion of their uh, training or CCT. And when we assess these trainees, we assess them on knowledge, and we do that by in-service exams, uh, the FRCS, uh, and uh, practical uh, vivas. Uh, when we assess skills, we do it by uh, mini CEXs, DOPS, and PVAs. You don't need to know what those are, but let's, let's say they are practical assessments, either in a clinical situation, in a theater, or uh, in outpatients. And that all goes within a portfolio. And then in terms of their attitudes, insight, and organization, we do a multi-source feedback. And for those of you that haven't been through it, or those that have uh, about to go through revalidation, multi-source feedback forms a significant part uh, of your revalidation. And then we create a structured educational report. But skills training got brought in because of uh, certain things that were happening in the, in the background. All of you will know about what happened with the Bristol affair and cardiothoracic surgery. And that was a big 
driver for revamping what was happening within cardiothoracic surgery and also skills training. At the same time, the GMC were looking towards revalidation and appraisal. Uh, there was uh, significant input coming in through manpower and potential training issues, and a lot of the training issues were related uh, to the European Working Time Directive and the fact that you didn't have enough time to train your surgeons and or uh, other uh, physicians, or certainly invasive physicians. Uh, in the past, the, the, the general adage was that you needed 40,000 hours to train your average surgeon to competency as a consultant. Your average time actually spent now is of the order of about 10,000 hours. So how do you give that 40,000 hours experience uh, in uh, 10,000 man hours? We then had uh, parallels with the airline industry uh, where, for those of you that don't know, if you were to travel on a plane every day, the chances of you having a mishap, i.e. plane crashing, is about once in every 320 years. Yeah. So traveling on an airline is extremely safe. If you go into hospital as a patient, you have a one in 10 chance of an adverse event. So hospitals are dangerous places. So we've got to get into a situation where we can actually train people better and actually uh, reduce these mishaps. Uh, and the biggest problem that we have at the moment is financial pressure because you've got your managers wanting to deliver within a financial envelope. And for those of you that don't know, we've got 6% reduction year on year for five years. We're in year three stroke four at the moment and people are really struggling. And uh, concomitant with that, we've got the introduction of revalidation, recertification. Uh, we've got a commitment to audit. Uh, and we've also got Big Brother uh, watching us in terms of the GMC. So what drove uh, skills training forward? Now, it was the advent of laparoscopy approximately uh, 15 to 20 years ago that saw the major change and started to parallel a bit with what was happening with simulation in the airline industry. When laparoscopic cholecystectomies came in about uh, 20 years ago, it was very much see one, do one, uh, teach one. And there were huge mishaps occurring with uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Completely different kettle of fish from what's, uh, what's happening now. But where this has driven us is towards simulation uh, and controlled training environment. And as all of you will know, all form of surgery has a learning curve. Uh, what impacts on that learning curve can depend on caseload, the equipment that you have, which I've already alluded to with what we have in Africa, supervision, prior experience in terms of general surgical in experience, and innate capabilities, which are actually quite difficult uh, to define. And the thing about the learning curve is that the point varies with the competence and expertise of the surgeon, and where can you draw the line? And again, if you are teaching trainees, should you be teaching trainees on patients, and should the patients actually be the ones uh, who are bearing the cost or the misfortune of that training? So the pressures that we have on training in the 21st century are that we had traditionally gone through an apprenticeship system. Uh, we've, got the, we've got the impact of economy in within that system. We've got decreased uh, operating time. We've got uh, decreased costs within the health system. We've got increasing uh, legal manifestations where you can only really practice something that you are fully trained to do. Uh, and the problem that we've got at the moment is this is a lot less resident responsibility. So by the time you actually become a consultant, you need to be safe and effective in terms of what you're doing. And of course, technology is constantly changing. And if technology is changing, you need experience and time. And the conundrum that we have in the UK at the moment with bringing our trainees through is you've got service delivery, you've got uh, the training, uh, and the time that you've got for the training and how you're going to train them and the restrictions of the European Working Time di Directive. And the challenge is to devise innovative ways of training within the limit of less, less hours. Uh, for those of you that don't know, and I'll just go through this very quickly, uh, there are certain UK standards for residents in training. And for those that go through surgical training, they have to have the knowledge and the important thing is by the time you become a consultant, you need to know specifically and broadly about the disease or disease group that you're training. And 
you need to get to a level four competency in terms of technical skills so you're competent of doing that procedure without assistance. Now, for those of you that haven't come through surgical training, when you get to your consultant level or CCT as we, as we define it, you generally have to be competent at a level three and sometimes in four. In terms of core urology or core surgery, you would be expected to get a level four competencies. In certain uh, subspecialist areas, you probably only go to the three. But how are, we, how are we going to get there? And what we have seen recently is an explosion in terms of laparoscopic surgery, and more recently, particularly in urology, and to a lesser extent, uh, uh, general surgery and uh, gynecology, is the advent of the robot. But what are the disadvantages of these other technologies? Well, with traditional open surgery, we've got 3D viewing and we've got a tactile sensation. With endoscopic surgery, you've only got mononocular vision. With laparoscopic surgeon, you've only got 2D vision, but you've got reduced tactile sensation. And with robotic-assisted uh, uh, surgery, you've got 3D vision, but you've got a limited tactile sensation. So the first thing you need to remember, this is actually Tony Mundy, who was uh, one of our presidents of BAUS, our subsection of the college, uh, who's now in his mid-60s, attempting to learn basic surgical techniques. He couldn't cope with it and he's given up. But generally, age is no bar if you've got a certain degree uh, of ability. Um, and the thing about uh, the great variation in natural ability is that this uh, becomes less important when you're going through uh, proficiency training which is competency based because in the old style apprentice system if you came through and you were a very good innate natural operator you could get through far quickly uh, far more quickly uh, but often didn't because of the restrictions in terms of jobs etc that held you up but in a competency based system in theory you should be able to get there if you achieve those competencies at a required uh, pace and time. Although what we are finding is it's still time dependent rather than competency dependent. Yeah? Uh, but what we do need to do is that when we're talking about new techniques, they need to be, uh, we need to have proficiency-based training with it and we need the maintenance of the skills. And what restricts the, uh, our practice and our ability is the frequency of the procedure, whether it may be technically demanding and the level of instrumentation that you've got. And the problem with skills training in the UK is that the UK has few training centers, it has lack of trained manpower, it has lack of funding, and it has lack of uh, trainers. And we're sitting within an NHS system that just wants output rather than necessarily quality. And I say quality with uh, inverted commas because there is no doubt, post-Francis, there is a push towards quality. Everybody's trying to aim for quality, but it is a compromise between efficiency, quality, and getting output through. And the problem with the UK health system is it doesn't reward hospitals for performing complex procedures with new technology. Yeah? The refund that you get is not actually there. Uh, so what we need to think about when we're thinking about effective proficiency-based training demands is we need effective simulators, we need a curriculum with validated assessment, and we need good e educators. And there is evidence, it's not very good evidence, but there is evidence that centers with high volumes of cases report better outcomes. And what now I'm going to bring is a bit of food for thought, because if you are going to create training centers nationally, they need to have a regular caseload, they need to be off a learning curve, they need provision of simulator training, and they need specific fellowship positions for a trainee. And fellowship training within the UK is not well organized. And it's not well organized because as far as the GMC is concerned, training is your, your training is your curriculum. Your curriculum is geared towards getting a generalist out into the community or out into your hospital to provide the care for what they need. And I've just come back from a college meeting today where we've just reviewed the shape for training. Some of you may not have heard of the shape for training, but it's the latest review. And the latest review has basically said that we don't want super specialists, we don't want specialists, we actually want everybody to come through to CCD training as a generalist. 
And that's what the community needs, that's what the population needs. We've got to go out and deliver within the primary care settings. What we don't want is trainees deciding that they want to be super specialist robotic surgeons when actually the demand is not there for them. So we've really got a big change in the training that we are doing uh, going forward. But the one thing the uh, shape of uh, training uh, change will bring about is it will allow fellowships to happen. Now, just in terms of where we go with simulation, we, uh, we, we have dry labs, and dry labs are bench models. They're simple and cheap. Uh, they give good surgical immersion, but we define them as low fidelity. And the evidence about whether they actually work very well lack effective validation. The great advantage of that low fidelity training is you can put it in most hospitals, you can learn a specific skill in terms of suture tying, etc., uh, and allows you to get up to a standard before you let loose on patients. Wet labs is the next stage up. Having done the dry lab, you can get out into wet lab uh, and operate on animals. The traditional one is a pig for the majority of us, but we have very restrictive European laws as far as the UK is concerned. We've got the animal rights uh, activists, and we basically have no wet lab centers within the UK. So you have to go to France, you have to go to Denmark, you have to go to Sweden to be able to do your wet lab training. And where, where the colleges are thinking about going forward uh, with uh, this uh, simulation is as follows. They want low fidelity, i.e. basic, technical, basic motor skills, suturing, etc., to be available in all uh, teaching hospitals and DGHs. High fidelity simulation, which is the advanced technical and cognitive aspects within the teaching hospitals. And then high fidelity team training available on a regional basis. The problem is, is there is no money in the system. And because there's no money in the system, we are not in a position where we can go forward with a natural, uh, national strategy with this. Uh, so we do need to think carefully about it. There is food for thought here, but there is no doubt that simulation is going forward. And simulation with human factors training is actually going to be very, very important. Uh, simulation. Uh, potentially, if you compare it with the airline industry, is an ultimate uh, test. It reduces surgical errors, it improves patient safety, and ultimately will reduce uh, operative time and costs because you're not training trainees first on, on a human. Yeah? Now, other countries have taken these national centers a little bit further, and Denmark has developed a virtually minimally invasive development center. Uh, where they've got agreement on basic uh, concepts. They've collaborated between surgery, gynae, and urology, uh, and they've had continual evaluation and research. And they tend to do this on a modular system. For those of you uh, who have been out to other European places, particularly Germany, a lot of these uh, training is now comparing on a modular basis. And on uh, very basic modules, you'll do uh, day skills courses away from the patient, you'll uh, review things on CDs uh, and uh, uh, other forms of uh, delivery. Modules two and three, you'll generally go with an animal course with CD of procedures, and then modules three and four, uh, speciality specific, including logbook and procedures performed. And also with these modules three and four, if you're doing an operation, you break down the operation. So if, for instance, you're doing a laparoscopic radical prostatectomy, you will only do part of the operation. You get pro uh, proficient in the first part. You can then go on to the second part, second part, third part, et cetera, and then finally uh, finish up. But the effectiveness of this is yet to be uh, determined. The problem we've got now is, is what is the final product of training? Because we've got shape for training saying, well, actually, we only want to train general surgeons or general urologists. What we don't want is subspeciality trainees coming out off the top. So if, we, if that's what they want, do we need to go through the whole of this process when actually all we need to do is teach them core schools? But that is food for thought. Now, back to more general uh, things and in terms of perambulations around. Having got back uh, from a... a Kilimanjaro, I then did a number of other trips. We walked uh, around uh, Mont Blanc. I then went up Mont Blanc. Uh, there's not a lot to tell you about Mont Blanc, apart from the fact that Mont Blanc is the hardest mountain I've done. It is dangerous. 
Yeah? And it is very cold up there. And there's no doubt that the last bit going up is actually very hard, particularly if you take the hard route. I took the easy route, but I still found it very hard. And it is very cold. And then you're at the top of Mont Blanc, you walk along Mont Blanc, and you've got a little narrow ledge about that wide. And at 6 o'clock in the morning, you've got about 100 people using that. So you've got 50 going out one way, going up and getting to the top, and you've got about another 50. I'm exaggerating, it's like it's 20 each way. Uh, but when you've got a ledge with a 2,000-foot fall either side, you do worry about it. But one of the nice trips that I went, uh, did was, uh, was uh, Mount Tukbal in Morocco. And the nice thing about uh, Mount Tukbal was actually going to another country, predominantly Muslim. But Morocco, as many of you will know, is actually a very nice country. And they're very receptive to other religions and, uh, uh, and tourists. But the one thing I just want you to notice about this is that unlike Kilimanjaro that you've just seen, where you've got lush green at the bottom and you've got uh, lunar landscape at the top, Mount Tukbal hardly differs uh, at all. It is like this all the way. That's Mount Tukbal uh, in, the, in the far distance. Uh, but a very, very nice uh, walk. Uh, these are more pictures actually showing you the relatively sparse landscape. It looks like this most of the way. Uh, this place here is the final place before the ascent round the back up to the top of Mount Tukbal. So that's sitting there. Uh, at about uh, 12,500 uh, feet. This is actually a shrine to uh, one of the uh, Muslim uh, prophets. The nice thing about Morocco is they like tourists and it's full of uh, riads and they are very, very hospitable. And what you see here is a typical riad actually sitting in Marrakesh. They're absolutely beautiful. Um, very colorful plates. The souks are all very colorful. You can find anything there, but you've got to spend your time bartering. Because if you don't barter, you will get fleeced. And now I'm getting back to wine, yeah? Because I started with wine. Uh, right, I started with wine. Uh, Morocco is now becoming a wine center. Uh, and there are two very big wineries. There's this chap here on the, uh, the left-hand side who uh, owns a uh, winery in uh, France in the uh, uh, Rhone area, but he has now started uh, developing and growing uh, Roussan grapes in uh, Morocco, and they are producing some seriously uh, good wines. Finally, just the last two trips, which have been cycle trips. Uh, the last one was in Argentina in 2012, and the most stupendous thing about Argentina uh, is the huge variation in uh, uh, scenery. It is full of lakes and mountains. And this cycle was across the Andes, but it was the low Andes. So you're going across at about 10,000 10, feet from uh, Balarochi uh, into uh, Chile. Uh, that, this is at the top as we're going through uh, the top of the uh, Andes at that low area of the Andes, at about 10,500 feet. But beautiful scenery, as you can see. Now, the, the one thing I just want you to go with the take-home message is Argentina makes beautiful wines. Chile make beautiful wines. If we go back to the early 1990s, they were producers of Plonk. They are now producers of seriously uh, good wines. And the thing to know about it is, is it has its own microclimate because of the Andes. So the majority of the wine is grown uh, at about uh, between three and 6,000 feet. It is very warm during the day, but it gets quite cold at night. So that, that particularly affects the way the, the grapes mature. They have their own signature wines, and I'm going to tell you the ones I'm recommending here. If you've never had a, uh, a uh, Pinot Noir from Argentina, this is the one I recommend. This is the one you can get in the UK. It's about £12.50. Torrentes is their grape. It came from France, but it's their national grape uh, in Argentina. And Susana Balbo is one of the foremost makers in uh, Argentina, and her wines are easy to get in the UK. Michel Rouland, you may have heard, if you're seriously into wine, he's an American, sorry, a French winemaker, but he has started his own series of wineries uh, in uh, America, uh, sorry, in Argentina, and this is Clos de los Siet. Uh, it's about 12 pounds a bottle, and you can get it from Majestic. 
but it is a serious blend. So it's uh, Cabernet Franc, it's Cabernet Sauvignon, it's a bit of Merlot and a bit of Petit Verdot as well. If you want a pure Malbec, then I would recommend Catina as being the standard bearer within Argentina. Again, easy to get in the UK. This one's about 23 quid a bottle, although you can get his lesser version of this for about 12.50 a bottle. In terms of chili, chili, really, you cannot beat chili in terms of the five to 10 pound mark. They make the best wine in the five to 10 pound region. They do a very good Pinot Noir, they do lots of the other good grapes, La Viognier and Gerstraminer. I can't pronounce that very well, never have been able to. But what is now becoming a bit more of a signature for them is Carmenier. And the Montes Alpha you can get very easily in the UK. It's about £12 a bottle. This one is purely organic. It's my favourite winery, uh, Matetic. And that Sauvignon Blanc is absolutely out of the world, and that's about 13 quid a bottle. So it really competes very seriously with the New Zealand ones. Um, this cycle trip that we've done very recently was done, very, uh, was done to raise money for the Urology Foundation. The Urology Foundation is basically promoting men's health, just like Movember is at the moment. Uh, uh, but what we do when we go out there, apart from try and raise money for Roger Kirby, seems to, some of you will know Roger Kirby, others of you won't. He's one of our eminent urologists in the UK. He's been the driving force behind this. His prostate, prostate centre in London, but also increasing men's health and awareness. But when we go on these foreign trips, we also uh, do visit local schools, raise money for local schools, and take uh, equipment out there. Uh, this is the beautiful scenery that we've seen out here. That's uh, at the top of Table Mountain with ostriches, uh, uh, baboons. I just want to give you, tell you something about Proteus. Most of you will heard about Proteus. I never knew anything about Proteus, apart from the fact it was a nickname for one of the South African, uh, South African sports teams. But what you do learn about Proteus is Proteus is a special group, a group of plants. You only find it around the Cape, you only find it in Australia, and you find it very rarely in South America. Now, the reason you see a lot of it in Australia and a lot around the Cape is because before they actually separated, they were very much together. And because South America separated from the Cape and Australia far earlier than uh, these two, you see a lot of protea in these two areas, but hardly any in South America. It's very good for brandy. Now, the main thing about the Cape is it's quite cool because it's on the sea. Whereas if you go inland, which is where we did most of our cycling, it's very warm and has its own microclimate, and they make extremely good brandy. You can now find brandy that will equal the best uh, uh, from France. South African wines, these are the ones I recommend. For those of you that don't know uh, about Mirlas, Mirlas is one of the iconic wines in uh, South Africa. Their, their, their Mirlas classic is Rubicon, but in 2011, they haven't made their vintage. In other words, they put no grapes into, it's a bit like first and second growths, and uh, first and second uh, uh, samplings and bottlings. So effectively, Mirlas Red is a second bottling normally, but because they've got no Rubicon, it's a first bottling. So rather than paying 25 pounds, you're paying about 11 pounds, or if you go to the Wine Society, nine pounds 95, and you are effectively getting extremely good, uh, extremely good grapes. I just want to mention a bit about, about Paul Kluver. He's actually in Elgin. Elgin has its own slightly microclimate because it's slightly inland, uh, and therefore they do very good white wines. The most important thing about him, he's a neurosurgeon, or he was a neurosurgeon, but his family owned uh, this property. Uh, I'll just show you that property here. Actually, this bit, it's not there now. Uh, but uh, he gave up neurosurgery in his early 50s, and he's now started to make some of the iconic wines in South Africa. Again, along the Karoo, this is an up-and-coming uh, winery. Uh, these are basically 12 to 15 pounds a bottle, which you can get in the UK from South Africa wines online, if you like your South African wines. And finally, I want to finish with Sri Lanka. Over the last four years, I've been going to Sri Lanka, and I've been going to Sri Lanka uh, initially on behalf of the Royal Society of Medicine. Uh, they recently had a trip out there linked with Baus. The most important thing about Sri Lanka is that it is a third world country. Uh, but it actually has, in Colombo, some first world facilities, particularly in the private sector. Uh, it has the National Hospital. Uh, 
its facilities are not too dissimilar from what you've seen already uh, in Tanzania, but in Colombo, they do actually have fairly good uh, facilities. Uh, it has a national hospital, which is uh, divided into north and south. Uh, it is a very colorful place. It's a Buddhist area, predominantly Buddhist. And what has happened is, like most places, it's been through a civil war, which has been religious in nature, uh, with the Sinhalese uh, in the south and Jaffna up here in the north. So you get very good health care around here, and you get hopeless health care up here. You've got one neurologist up there and two general surgeons serving a population of about 1.2 uh, million. It is very beautiful, it is very colorful, and they are extremely friendly people, and they play cricket very well. Generally, our itinerary has been based on lectures, a wet lab in terms of reconstructive work, uh, an operative workshop, but unlike what I've described with Tanzania, it's been a mixture of female urology, stones, and also uh, oncology. And just like Bill going across to do his exams abroad, we've done, we, go, we tend to go over and do exams with them, and we've now set up a healthy exchange where they come over on a Visa 5 exchange via the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, and they're able to work in this country for a year before going back, but have to go back on that uh, visa. And I'm planning the next trip back out there because my daughter, who's a medical student, is going out to Sri Lanka for an elective. So I'll be going out to Jaffna on the 28th of July for two weeks. I'll be doing a week's workshop out there if anybody wants to come out with me. And that's Jaffna in the north, and then the Maldives on the way back. And back to wine again, because wine, you can't find it. I went on Jancis Robson's website, and she said she couldn't find any wine in Sri Lanka. It's not one I've tasted, but this is a Sri Lankan red, which is just coming onto the market. But as you can see, it's actually uh, organized and run, the wine is run by a Chinaman. And for most of you that don't know, China is really starting to take over most of the first and second growths uh, in the wine industry. And actually, the top red wine outside French Bordeaux or Bordeaux varietal uh, last year in the wine challenge was actually a Chinese wine. So they're really coming along. So thanks very much.